The following is a special encore presentation of Mance and Mitchell. Gary, Suzanne, and guests will be back in the studio again next Saturday at 10 a.m., so be sure to join us then for another edition of Mance and Mitchell right here on Alternative Talk 1150. The following audio is via a Skype call. What if this is as good as it gets? It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy weekend. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Manson Mitchell on the air for an hour in your ears with pleasure. Good job. You don't need any Q-tips. You just need to listen up and learn from some of the greats. And we're going to interview one of them today. He'll get the wax out of your ears. Sure did mine as I went through his work. Dr. Eric Maisel. What a guy. He's just fantastic. Here's somebody who keeps it real. But before, I'm getting ahead of myself here, Suzanne, because we have not you paid are. homage. You are. You're at a fast pace. I am. You're I like am. a hockey player racing down the ice. I left my tennis shoes behind. I'm running down the street barefoot. Okay. I, we got to say hello to the man whom we refer to simply as the, the dude. dude. That's Mike Roberge. Michael, how are you doing today, sir? Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, getting all ready for opening day here along the Mount Light Cut. People are gathering for uh, the uh, Windermere Regatta and also the uh, first official day of boating season. How about that? Oh, there you go. I'll have to get my boat out of dry dock and sail over. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) But you just got to be careful from the projectile missiles coming from uh, the uh, shore of the cut. I think we've had this conversation before, but anyhow, we have. We were watching. Uh, we we were watching Ariel Britain <laughs> last Sunday night, and they're talking about Oxford and Cambridge in the uh, rowing competition. And for seven consecutive years, Cambridge took the measure of Oxford last time by over seven legs. And I looked at Suzanne and I said, "I need to be taking notes here. Obviously, this is very important information." More ammo. We need more ammo. Pelt those guys with rotten fruit. That's the way it works. Oh, man. It's it's just tradition. It is. I remember that that opening day every year. It is a big deal all around Puget Sound. Well, we are here today getting ready to talk to a gentleman who is a psychologist, a psychotherapist, a master of creativity, and a creativity coach par excellence. I also think he has a knack for getting people who are in the doldrums to take a step back to give themselves the gift of detachment in order to look at a situation for what it is instead of what we wish it could be or fear that it might be. There's nothing wrong with some good rationality, some objectivity to go with a strong dose of creativity. And as if that were not mad props enough, I'm going to read something from the back of one of his books. All right. Eric Maisel, Ph.D., the author of 40 books is widely regarded as America's foremost creativity coach. Eric is a columnist for Professional Artist Magazine and a featured blogger for Psychology Today and the Huffington Post. HuffPost. He reaches thousands through his website, workshops, and online courses. He is the founder of Noimetic Psychology, the new psychology of meaning, and lives in the San Francisco Bay Area. Though he's still a boy from the Bronx, I know how that works. Dr. Maisel, Eric, so glad to have you with us again today. Wonderful to be with you, and and what's with this Cambridge dominance? I want to I want to I want to see if that's rigged or something. It may be, and I certainly am not going to get any answers out of NATO. They're mad at us right now. 
Well, I feel sorry for Oxford, but not really. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So catch us up a little bit, Eric. I mean, it's it's, it's been, been a too while. long since yep. we've had you on. The trends in your career, what you're seeing with your clientele, what you're seeing in society, just lay it on the line for us. Well, I've crossed now 50 books probably in your uh, intro. I guess it was 40. Now it's 50. Noimedic psychology, that got... Um, Abandoned because nobody could say the word, so I don't have a <laughs> I don't have a name for the thing I'm doing anymore. Professional artist magazine changed hands, so I don't write for them anymore, etc. Change is the name of the game. But uh, I've been doing a lot of things for um, children. I was serving as editor for Parent Resources at a big website called Mad in America, and it's a website that tries to take to task um, psychiatry. It's in what's called the critical psychology or critical psychiatry or anti-psychiatry camp, which believes that kids in particular are being, doing, be, being done a great disservice via these uh, more and more diagnoses coming down the pike, more ADHDs and more oppositional defiant disorders and what have you. So I've been doing a, write, a lot of writing in that area, and I have a new book out in that. Um, area called Helping Parents of Diagnosed, Distressed, and Difficult Children. And uh, a lot in that critical psychiatry area, which I think uh, is a really important place for folks to look because so many people are turning to medication for things like hating their job or being unhappy in a relationship, or if they're a kid, just saying no, just being put on drugs because they're saying no, which is essentially what oppositional defiant disorder is. So those are some of the things I've been doing recently. Dr. Maisel, I'm so glad that you started there because that is something that has interested me for some time. I have been really wondering to myself if adults are over-medicated, are children being over-medicated too? And I kind of look at the long term on that and say to myself, where are we going as a society if we have everybody, uh, you know, from from the infant to the grave on a series of prescription drugs to help them cope with life? And, and the, it's especially disturbing as children. When I think about, you know, my own childhood or the childhood of my parents, it just couldn't possibly be more different. The difference between running around outside and being inside with a tablet in your hand. And so I'm wondering, you know, what what the effect of all these drugs have when you don't have kids who are just outside playing? Well, these drugs are gateway drugs to addictive drugs. So that's one thing. That's a huge problem. Um, suicidality is higher on these drugs than off of them. Uh, but most basically, these aren't drugs. They're chemicals with powerful effects. For them to be medication, there needs to be some underlying illness that's being treated, and there's no underlying illness. Kids are being labeled as opposed to diagnosed. And so it's not a medical operation. It's very pseudo-medical. The power of it is analogy. It's the power from physical disorder to mental disorder. It sounds so sensible to draw that analogy, but it's an inaccurate analogy. And so psychiatry in particular, but let's call it the establishment, and it's a big establishment, pharmaceutical companies, academia, politicians, 
there are a lot of people playing the game, the labeling game. Throughout history, these labels have been used to silence people, oppress people, not just kids, but dissidents. Um, lots of different people have been oppressed and silenced by the labeling as mentally ill or mentally diseased or mentally disordered. So to make that long story short, millions and millions of kids are being done a disservice right now, and their parents are under tremendous pressure to accept this paradigm, to accept this vision. In fact, in some states, it amounts to child neglect or child abuse to not put your kid on these medications. And that situation is getting worse and worse. It's becoming more uh, common for everybody to believe in these disorders when, in fact, there's no there there. There are behaviors. Please let no one misunderstand me. Obviously, a child might be sad or anxious or rushing around or what have you. There are behaviors. There are feelings. But that's different from them being mentally disordered. Do you think there's a lot less mental disorder than you would believe if you were watching the news and finding out about all the ADHD and and all the stuff that is being diagnosed? Do you do you say to yourself, it's really not that bad? We're making it that bad? Well, I have a simple mantra for my own life, and that's do the next right thing. And right doesn't exactly mean moral there. It sort of means next appropriate thing, the thing that serves my life purposes most appropriately. And I don't think that people are doing the next right thing when they check in on the news and just find themselves powerless again. It's one thing if you're checking the news so that you can see where to be an activist, you know, where to take action. That's one thing that makes perfect sense to me. If one of your life purposes is to be an activist, then you'd want to know where to put that energy. But if you're just checking the news to disturb yourself further, not only are you disturbing yourself further, but you're not living your life purposes. Most folks don't get their life purposes onto their daily to-do list. They get lots of errands and responsibilities and tasks and chores onto their to-do list, but they don't get their business that they want to start or the novel that they want to write or the services they want to perform or lots of different things that matter to them. They don't get them onto their daily to-do list. And they squander lots and lots of small increments of time. When 15 minutes appear, when half an hour appear, what do most people do? They check their email one more time. They check in on the news. They check in on things that are not necessary to check in on when, if they had their life purposes in mind, they could turn to something more important to themselves. I really like that you said that, Dr. Maisel, and it's interesting. The very first note that I made for our interview today, right under your name, I put the difference between between being an actor or being acted upon. And I, I've had this uh, sense that there, we are responding to being acted upon by a lot of these outside forces, and you are talking about taking the action that you would take if you if you made um, the, a purpose or a goal or something in your life a priority. And, you know, I struggle with that myself. I've gone from working full-time to working part-time, and I can remember when my dad retired and he said to me, I've never been so busy as now that I'm retired. 
And I just kind of scratched my head. I was working 40 hours a week plus, and I didn't feel like I had any personal time. Well, now I'm working part-time, and I still manage to fill up those days. And I, and I say to Gary, you know, when are we going to be writing our book? When are we going to do this? When are we going to do that? Because how, why is that not a priority? I mean, how old... <laughs> Where do you have to the be? The short in life answer is you, make, you haven't you haven't made it one. Is the short that, answer. That is the short answer, and I'm 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 sorry that you're saying that you've kind of given up on the 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 term noimetic psychology, because that, from my understanding, that is about creating meaning in your life, such that you're not a sad or depressed person or needing medication. You're on a track of what it is that makes your life meaningful and enjoyable, and you want to get up in the morning and do it. Have I got that right? That's right. And uh, for some people, meaning doesn't work as, as a word. Meaningful just doesn't quite resonate. So another simple way to say it is what's important. And a lot of people can't really identify what's important, and that's a crisis. If you can't identify what's important to you, that amounts to a crisis, because that means you're just going to be running around like a chicken with your head cut off all day long. So people have to stop and identify what's important. If, if nothing feels important, then they have to invest, in my language, they have to invest meaning in something. They have to invest purpose in something and hope that it will prove important, hope that it will feel important ultimately. So here are some sort of top headlines. Things in the service of meaning don't necessarily feel meaningful as we do them. Like writing your book that you're not writing. On a given day, it may feel very sloggy to do it. It may feel harder than doing something easier. And so we don't do those things, and we forget that, that a thing that's important to us need not and may not feel meaningful as we do it. Another analogy is if you're if you're an activist in the service of a cause that's really important to you, but your job this week is just to lick envelopes or, or send out form emails or something, that's your job this week. Well, the whole week may feel boring to you, may feel tedious, and yet you're doing something important. You're doing something in the service of meaning. Most folks don't get that distinction. They want the thing they're doing to feel meaningful. Let me say it a different way. In the, in the day before, days before, D-Day, we don't care how Eisenhower feels. We don't, we don't care if he's anxious or depressed. We just want him to get the invasion right. And the same is true for ourselves, that we should be thinking less about how we're feeling, sort of micromanaging our feelings, and be much more aware of what's important to us and getting to those things that are important to us. And as you said, I think a, a top-level tactic is to have a morning practice of some sort. For you guys, it might be the book. And there's a reason why I think it should be a morning practice. And one of the reasons is that you'd get a lot done. Anybody who has a real practice gets a lot done, whatever they're doing. And the second is that you, if you're doing some intellectual work, like writing a book, you would get to make use of your sleep thinking. That is the thinking that your brain has been doing during the night you could sort of take dictation and your book would, so to speak, write itself if you were doing it first thing in the morning. And thirdly, you have made some meaning on that day already and the rest of the day could feel half meaningless and you wouldn't get depressed. By doing something real first, you set the tone for the day. And most people just don't operate this way. They start their day already rushing around, 
sort of turn towards should I have cereal or, or a bagel and what's going on at work today and all of those things. And they don't take that 40 minutes or 20 minutes or one hour before their real day starts to do something important, something that they deem important. If they did that, that would reorient their day and they would feel much better. I'll tell you, my own experience uh, it really confirms what you just said. I, I have a, Generally, I have a to-do list almost every day. And on those days, and, and it starts out Monday, I, I make one list for the whole week and then just kind of add to it. And if I have a productive Monday morning and, and early afternoon, I'm just smiling and relaxed and I don't care what happens the rest of Monday. If I, if I get sidetracked on Monday morning and I get nothing done until the evening, it doesn't matter how much I get done in the evening. I come from a different space mentally, right. like I got nothing done all day. And then I'm trying to run sad. and catch up. We get a little yes. sad and disappointed in ourselves. Yes. I think a lot of people are spending their days a little sad and disappointed with themselves that the whole day has been just one thing after another that they haven't been getting to their real things. Yes. <clears throat> and I think that is easily three quarters to 80 percent i'm just using a round figure when i say 80 percent for example it could be higher of people who have this idea about what they want idealized notions much of the time eric and then when their ambitions are thwarted or they feel that life is somehow disappointing them they go yep. into a rather blue funk May I yep. give you an example of the kind of frustration to which it can lead? And I don't even know this guy, but I gave him a fairly lengthy response to a question that he posed on a site that I go to. It's called Quora, where people can bring up anything under the sun and you phrase it as a question. And then you ask the world essentially to give you some answers because they need the help. And this guy happens to live in Australia. What he wrote was, it seems to me, and he's, he's not yet 30, okay? So, you know, I have a lot to learn and I'm more than twice his age. But here this, this young man said, it just seems to me that if you are a jerk, and the word he used was, you know, mm -hmm. was basically a-hole. He said, if that's the kind of guy you have to be in order to get women, and his experience in his 27 years of life was that the guys who are a-holes, the real jerks, are the ones who get all the women. Note the overgeneralization. They get all the women. They're the ones who are happy. They get the promotions at work. They make the most money and drive the fanciest cars. Whereas the nice guys, the proverbial nice guy finishing last, is all too true as he saw it. So therefore, and he kind of broke it down as an equation, be a, a jerk and be arrogant, be overweening, get women, get money, get ahead in life. Be a nice guy, finish last, be regarded as a loser. And he saw that as a binary choice. So my free advice to him and my response was, have you tried the middle path of rationality? There's nothing wrong with having enlightened self-interest being reasonable in your assessment of your situation and your prospects in any given set of circumstances 
and accept that it may not turn out perfectly for you, it probably won't. But life satisfactions go to those who have clarity and have a sense of meaning and purpose rather than those who feel they have to belong to one camp or another. And I would have maybe prefaced that, which all of which I agree with, with there's a part of what you're saying that's absolutely correct. I think I might have honored part of what he was saying. We understand that throughout history, and certainly right now, let's just call it the authoritarian personality, the person he's calling a jerk, but let's just let's be a little more scientific or sophisticated and call it the authoritarian personality. There are no real statistics on how many people are that person, but uh, the pundits who write in that area feel that maybe 25% of the general population could be classified as an authoritarian personality. And there are distinctions there between authoritarian leaders and authoritarian followers and what have you. But these are aggressive, exploitative, narcissistic folks who, who want what they want and who try to get what they want and who try to diminish and shame other people, etc. And they are out there. So he's speaking to a truth. He was not say, telling the whole truth, <laughs> but he was speaking to a truth that uh, the world can be a harsh place because of the species we are. There's a high, high percentage of folks who are not okay and who are dangerous, and we understand that in our politics. What we don't understand that so well is in our families. I just had a book come out about the authoritarian uh, personality in the family. The book is called uh, Helping Survivors of Authoritarian Parents, Siblings, and Partners. And that's a very secret place, that authoritarian wounding in the family, because, as, as you know, authoritarian personalities, narcissists, often look very good in the world. They're charming in the world, um, have lots of friends, hail fellow, well-met, etc., etc., and they perpetrate their horrors behind closed doors. So this is just not a very well-known phenomenon. But he's right that there are a lot of dangerous folks out there. And in my research, and I've done a lot of research in this area, in my research, the survivors of authoritarian parents, siblings, and mates have no good answer except to get away. That is, that there's nothing they can do with the authoritarian or to the authoritarian. They can't help themselves in the vicinity of the authoritarian, because that person is relentless, just too powerful, just relentless. And all they can do is get away, and the further the better, thousands and thousands of miles away. So it's a long-winded way of saying he, he had his finger on a little something, and your response was accurate, but he did have his finger on something. Uh, you know what, my next was, I hope I hear from him, I really do, because when you submit an answer to a question, often they might upvote it, as they call it, so that you get their like, their approval there, but they may not write anything in response. I hope that he does, because I would love to engage this young man in a conversation, and I will remember what it is you have said, and I also will be happy to turn him on to your books. Dr. Maysell, because I think that he would profit greatly. I'm not just saying that because you're on the air. I know that he would. 
and I also did, I will admit that, that my go-to person when it comes to living the rational life in the modern world is the late great Dr. Albert Ellis, who invented a psychotherapy, which by the way, has generated a lot of PhDs at universities in Australia, so he could find some of this stuff locally there. But Dr. Ellis being as great as he was, there are other voices, and yours is certainly a prominent one, to get people to create the sense of, of personal meaning. And if I took this young man's yep. angst for what I think it is, there, there's a question of what is my place in the world? He doesn't, he can't see himself being authoritarian, aggressive, being yeah. a, a player, Nor would we want cheater. him to be. No, that's I don't, right. I don't know if we have a moment, but I thought I would piggyback. There's a difference between thinking true and false thoughts and thinking thoughts that serve you. So there was a piece of what he was saying that was a true thought, but it was nonetheless not a thought that was serving him to think. It's mm. a big, it's a big distinction, and we get hooked onto thoughts that are true. We think we have to countenance thoughts that are true just because they are true. Like, let's say you're a writer, you walk into a bookstore, and you say to yourself, wow, there are a lot of writers out there. That's a true thought that may not serve a would-be writer to be thinking, because then you'll get demoralized by how many writers are out there. So that's all by way of saying I, there's a piece of the irrational therapy bit, the cognitive therapy bit, where it's important to be only thinking thoughts that serve you. It's a very high bar place to get to. But if he were doing that, he would no longer be thinking about all the jerks. He would be thinking about the things that serve him to be thinking about, how to be, what are the right things for him to do, how to be the person he wants to be, how to make himself proud, maybe how to be more assertive or more something. Maybe there is something he's needing for himself. In my language, maybe he needs to upgrade his personality. But all that being said, the top thing to do would be to think thoughts that serve you. I like that. Thinking those thoughts that serve you. And a person who can determine that is a person who is not living the life unexamined. That's exactly right. Uh, and one simple way to say what, what an examined life looks like is being willing to hear what you say to yourself, which is scary. And we're, we're tricky, pretty devious creatures. We don't want to hear what we're saying to ourselves because we're trying to fool ourselves about this, that, and the other thing. And for my creative folks, the things that they're saying to themselves most often to avoid getting their creative work done is, I'm too tired and I'm too busy. And because both of those have many grains of truth to them, they let themselves off the hook and they don't work on their novels, they don't work on their painting. So that's, just, that's another area of noticing being brave and noticing what you're saying to yourself, and in those cases, appending a big butt. So it's yeah, I'm busy, but I can spend 15 minutes on my novel, or I'm tired, but I can spend 20 minutes painting. It's honoring the truth of the utterance. Yeah, I'm tired. Yeah, I'm busy, but that's not the whole truth. It's just a portion of the truth. And the whole truth is I better get to the stuff I deem important. You know, I think uh, this is many, many years ago, but I recall hearing it said about Ernest Hemingway that he disciplined himself, even though he might have a mug of coffee with him, he would sit down at his typewriter and type out, hammer out 500 words before breakfast. And he did this routinely, maybe daily, for long stretches of time. And that's how he was able ultimately to win a Nobel Prize for Literature, because he disciplined himself to do something when rather, he might rather have been interested in going out and fly fishing. There, But no, there were the 500 words before breakfast, and he stayed committed. 
I'm glad you said it that way because I'm going to enjoy disputing the word discipline there. I would say he was devoted. Ah, I don't okay, think he was sure. a disciplined guy. Look at his tummy. Look at his drinking. Look <laughs> at this. Look at that. I'm not sure he was a disciplined guy, but he was devoted to words and stories. It was his, let's call it, spiritual place or existential place, place of meaning. Pavarotti has a quote I like, which is, people call me disciplined, but it's not discipline, it's devotion, and there's a big difference. Pavarotti, too, not a disciplined guy, but devoted to something. And yes, when, I, yes. you know, when I say that to my um, creativity coaching clients, they get that distinction, and it, lets, it finally frees them from this feeling of, I'm, I'm not disciplined enough to get the work done. That's not the issue. The issue is not disciplined enough. It's, are you devoted enough? Is this, are you passionate enough? Do you care enough? Does this matter? Does this matter? And if you come around to deciding, sort of re-anointing yourself as someone who matters and whose efforts matter, then you become devoted to the work. Oh, that's beautiful. Then what a great the, distinction. The re-anointing, a yeah. re-anointing of yourself and that word devotion is perfect. Now, the very outsized ego of one of my favorite writers, Norman Mailer, allowed him with, with perfect aplomb to declare that he was in his day the heavyweight champion of literature. And he was a great he was a great admirer of Hemingway's. And I thought, okay, I, there's no such thing as a heavyweight champion of literature. But if you think you are, that too will lead to a devotion that makes you who you can be and to optimize your life on That's earth. That's right. You, and, see, you feel you feel obligated to make use of what's inside of you. You feel kind of obligation to Yes, exactly. That's right. Use, and by the way, uh, Mail is uh -huh. a good example of, of a little something, which is a moment ago I mentioned the word narcissism and connected it to authoritarian personality, but to be a little more careful in my speaking, narcissism without an adjective isn't that meaningful. There's healthy narcissism and unhealthy narcissism. Mm -hmm. Developmental psychologists talk about healthy narcissism. That is good self-interest, good self-confidence, good egoism, stuff like that. And so Mailer is a good example of someone who is, and most creative people are just sort of a mixed narcissist, <laughs> lots of unhealthy narcissism, lots of healthy narcissism. And so from, from, a, from the creative's point of view, you want to be maximizing the healthy narcissism. You want to have passion. You want to be assertive. You want to advocate for your work. You want healthy narcissism while minimizing the unhealthy narcissism. And it was some. It was a man, a literary critic. I'm sorry, I've forgotten his name there, but he concluded your point and epitomized it very well in his obituary for Norman Mailer. At the end of it, he wrote, "Come back, Norman. Nothing is forgiven." <laughs> <laughs> Let's go ahead and take our break now. We are talking with Dr. Eric Mazel, author of more than 50 books and quite a few great ideas uh, in psychology and creativity. We have more questions, and he has more answers when we return from this brief break. So stay with us, and thank you for listening to Manson Mitchell on Alternative Talk AM 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to ManceAndMitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. 
Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mance and Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Olivia from Washington. Laid off and trying to keep our little kids from realizing that mommy and daddy haven't eaten in a while. Roger from California. I'm grateful we could afford our son's surgery. I'm nervous that now we can't really afford food. Daniel from California. Choosing whether to pay the rent or pay to fix the car to get to work doesn't leave us with much at all. Now we can't even pay for meals. Donna from Louisiana. The storm just hit, and we went from donating to the food bank to needing it. Keisha from South Carolina. I've been skipping meals so my two kids can eat, but filling up on water doesn't really work. Hunger is a story we can end. End it at feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We bring a unique talk radio blend your way every Friday and Saturday on 1150 KKNW. From pop culture to the paranormal, you get variety in a conversational style. Whether it's UFOs or ESP, angels or the afterlife, Bigfoot or your big dreams, everything is fair game on our show. Join the A-Team of Alternative Talk Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on the station that leads the pack without following the herd. Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. Organic, free-range, and fresh daily. Alternative Talk, 1150. The following audio is via a Skype call. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our very special guest for this hour, Dr. Eric Maisel. And um, Dr. Maisel, if people would like to connect with you, you have over 50 books. There's got to be something for everybody in that collection. What is your website? Um, I can figure out maybe where I can get the books, but what other ways do you have for people to connect with you? I do think that the website is the main way, and that's myname.com, which is E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L.com. And also I invite folks to write me. It's my name at hotmail.com, E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L at hotmail.com. And if there's, if there's some writers listening, I'd just would like to mention, I do deep writing workshops all over the world, and the next one is at the end of May in Dublin, Ireland. So if folks are interested in that, uh, just drop me an email and we can chat about that. Very good. One of the questions that I, I told Gary that I was very interested in asking you from your perspective, and I realize very subjective, but when you look at the the character uh, of what is going on in the United States right now, from a psychology point of view, we were we were we've talked to several people, including a, a neuroscientist yesterday, who 
we had a discussion about reality and consciousness and, you know, are we all thinking into the one mind, you know, that kind of a conversation. Do you see trends where people who are being acted upon rather than standing in their own truth and, and knowing themselves, um, do you see like a trend in the thinking in the United States going one way or another? We already talked a little bit about, um, you know, big pharma and everybody getting drugged up. But what do you think is like the personality right now? If if you were to look at it from Dublin or, or from Europe or from another continent, you're looking over at the United States. How do you think that that is being viewed? Are, are we all kind of buying into one personality? Complicated, isn't it? Yeah. I've always thought, from, from really from early childhood, I don't know why I had this feeling that the veneer of civilization was very thin and could crack at any time. I, I didn't believe that we were safe. Even then, I didn't believe we were safe from our worst impulses, from the authoritarian personalities among us. I was taken very early on with the writings of Camus and Sartre. And Camus writes in, a, in, a, in an essay, Letter to a German Friend, he writes to this um, German fellow that the, the French were very slow in believing that Hitler was as bad as he was because people on the left wanted to believe in the goodness of folks, but they had blinkers on. And it took them longer than it should to deal with the dangerousness of fascism. And that always struck a chord with me, that we might be slow to believe in the dangerousness of what was going on around us. So I think we're in a very mixed personality place right now. I think we've grown up with, relatively speaking, a lot of safety, and we felt like our systems and institutions and what have you couldn't be threatened, and they have been yes. threatened, and they're yeah. being threatened worldwide. The, the movement to the right is occurring everywhere. Um, I follow what goes on in Paris because that interests me, and, and like here, anti-Semitism is up worldwide, especially in Paris. The same old scapegoats are being scapegoated. So I think people are of two minds simultaneously. I think they're they're still in the safety mind of I'm going to live my life and things are fine, and in the sort of resistance danger mind of things are not okay, and I'm not exactly sure how to stand up or where to stand up, but I'd better stand up. So I think that confusion, that conflict between I'm okay and I'm not okay, and things are okay and things are not okay, is producing a lot of anxiety, a lot of despair, a lot of maybe addictive qualities too, maybe yet more addiction to our screens and what have you as a way to avoid dealing with what where we feel powerless. So to make that long story short, I, I think the dangers are real, and I think that we do need more activism. I don't think we can just live our own lives, even if our lives are good. I think we do have to step up in this moment. That's my personal feeling. I am just so happy to have you express it in just that way, 
because the sense that I have is very similar, especially the, the part where you said, I'm not sure what is mine to do. I, I said to Gary, you know, back in the 60s, I was too young to have participated in what was going on in Chicago during the uh, exactly. 1968 convention riots. My parents wouldn't let me out of the house, you know, much less go downtown to, to do that. But I said to Gary, it seems like it, all these years later, there's an unexpressed desire to go out and protest. I'd actually like to be in a protest. And right. we're in Sarasota, Florida. I mean, you get three people on a corner. That's a big protest. Yep. But, you know, I'm looking for that opportunity to be out there among the people who are expressing themselves as to what is okay and what is not okay. That's right. And it may be, you know, it, it, there, there are questions of strategy. And uh, my wife and I just watched a documentary last night about uh, four women who ran for Congress. I forget the name of the documentary. Only one of the four won, but a very interesting documentary. And maybe what's strategic is to pick a congressional district and a candidate and help one person get elected. Maybe that's the sensible thing to do. I, I've, I, again, as a young child, I didn't believe in the, the effectiveness of protests, actually. I didn't believe that they... I thought that they played into the hands of um, the authoritarian leaders, that there was a way in which there was always a backlash, and that it was probably behind the scenes that things got done, that we hoped got done. So, personally, this is, again, personally, I much more believe in maybe helping a candidate get elected than joining a march. That seems to me to be a reasonable reasonable tactic as to what might help in 2020. But I agree with you that people are feeling powerless while at the same time wanting to do something, but just don't know what's effective to do, what makes any sense to do. It's very hard to discern what makes any sense to do. Yes, yes. very well said. Mm -hmm. Eric, I, I'm thinking now of the the uh, toxic power of nicknames. There, uh, Unfortunately, the 45th president of the United States discovered Twitter. That's not a good thing for America or the world, and it certainly does nothing to elevate our political culture. When I hear now Joe Biden's entered the race, so he is officially Sleepy Joe, and we've got Crazy Bernie. Now, Kamala Harris, after her dismantling of the attorney general in her questioning the other day, now the word being attached to her is nasty. Well, we're familiar with that because right. nasty was attached to Hillary Clinton in 2016. Yep. If that is the level of political discourse, if we're even going to use the word discourse, it is no wonder to me, Eric, that we would have the kind of public-facing false equivalency that we saw in Charlottesville. Of course, that's the outcome you would get because you were inviting people to the lowest common denominator that you set as the terms of political debate. That's what scares me. Yep. And um, Orwell understood this probably as well as anybody. Um, the linguistic philosopher, British linguistic philosophers of the turn of the 20th century understood this stuff. 
we don't understand the po- advertisers understand the power of language marketers politicians the average person doesn't quite get how powerful language is and how appending these labels work just like with mental disorders you know i'm adhd i'm add i'm this i'm i'm that people buy it for themselves buy it for other people if there could be one one change in the education system it would be a basic class on the power of language and how not to be fooled or how not to be taken in but of course the powers that be who run the establishment wouldn't want students to understand how they're being taken in by language oh yes and marketing and television uh, where you are um, assaulted uh, about how it is that you should be living your life with this particular food, this particular drug, this vehicle. I mean, uh, um, being so manipulated by, right. by even, the media. Even manipulated by sort of the tone of voice. And how, what gets me now, what, what I find really fascinating is, you know, in all of these pharmaceutical ads now, they have to list the side effects, but they make them sound like benefits. There's a way of speaking that long list of possible side effects that make them right. sound like you want them. <laughs> right, and, and right. Your done, current it's done symptoms. by tone of voice. It's, I, yes. I don't know how marketers know how to do this. <laughs> they make it to where your current symptoms sound preferable by the time they're done, but that's the opposite of what they're attempting to do. Fatal events have occurred. You know, like careful that's right. with that left that's right. turn. Right, and we'll have more fun later in the show. And <laughs> <laughs> it's quite something. I look at the whole situation, and I'm reminded of the greatness of well, three people I can name off the top of my head. I'm sure you would consider each of them admirable in their own way. Alfred Korzybski. Professor Alfred Korzybski, who wrote Science and Sanity way back, I think it was in the late 30s. And, and just before World War II, it would have been very good had that become uh, common in the vernacular of yep. the world. Instead, it was something for intellectuals to grasp. And yep. then it slowly made its way through the conversation of humanity and still is in, in the terms of general semantics, as it's known. And the same applies to Dr. S.I. Hayakawa, who was a one-term senator from California and one of the oddest people in the history of the United States Senate, but a brilliant man who understood the power of semantics, not as mere semantics, never merely semantics, but semantics as the power of words as to their meaning. And then, of course, Noam Chomsky. you got to get that professor from MIT in there. These are the people who can help us understand. But I tell you, Eric, and this frustrates me no end, is that you can have the greatness of people like that on whose shoulders we should be standing in trying to perceive reality. And what you get instead are is a, rather an endless stream of a woman who has a sweatshirt with the hand-stenciled message, Trump can grab my you-know-what anytime with an arrow pointing south of her navel, and you have a man wearing his made-in-China MAGA hat who has, he's turned his face into a mask of hatred at a rally where he's aiming his wrath at the media. And this is something that is so repetitive that I'm, I'm starting to think that we're in danger of that becoming the new normal. Well, we are in danger of that becoming the new normal. Uh, we have uh, an interesting uh, year and a half coming. Um, who knows? 
mean, who knows which something feels, you know, in the balance on a seesaw, on a balance beam, it feels in the balance. So I, I, I think, mentioned earlier, life purposes, as a, and it's a big distinction for me. There's no purpose to life, I believe. It's rather that we decide on our life purposes, and we have multiple ones. Family might be one, creativity might be one, service might be one, but I do think that activism ought to be one for folks. And I think this is a very important, whatever it is, 18 months coming, where you, where one should add that to their, if it isn't on your list of life purposes now, I think it's something to add to your list of life purposes. And just in terms of organization, folks are disorganized now because we're all trying to do too many things and too many apples and oranges and too many moving parts. Because of that, it's hard to get any long-term thing onto your daily to-do list, whether that's your novel or starting your business, or whatever it might be. It's hard to get that onto today's to-do list. The same with being an activist. I think if you have some long-term plan for how you mean to be of help over these next two years, that has to begin to get onto your daily to-do list so that you're actually doing it. I love that that allows us to live on purpose and to turn that into more than a slogan, but rather become like this devotion that you used in relation to Hemingway there when we you decide a thing and you put your energy into it you know the metaphysicians Eric and I don't put you in that camp but they say something that really rings true for me energy flows where your attention goes or where your attention goes energy flows is another construction of that and I find that true because things will happen or I'll hear from people then when I'm focused on something that ordinarily I would not be, but I decide to peel off from my daily regimen, and I, which is yelling at MSNBC when Trump's on TV, and I'm yep. having an argument one-sided with him as I watch TV, yep. and Suzanne's going, he can't hear you there. But then, I'll, yep. then something will capture my attention. I go, you know, I'm going to pay attention to this thing, to write this email, to read this book. And when I do, an event or a person will come along that reinforces the shift in attention. It feels a bit like magic, I have to say. I agree, and one way I think of it is that each day has to be negotiated with ourselves. We have to negotiate with ourselves each day as to what we're doing. And so some of the days, some parts of the day can be about living our life purposes, and that can be about sending an email but with intention or having a discussion with our son about his drinking or hard things. Some portions of the day are about that. And then in my, in my language, some parts of the day can be like meaning neutral, where you don't pester yourself about the meaningfulness of life when you're caught in traffic or when something isn't going right of a certain sort. So, so the, the days have different qualities as to their importance. And we, make those, we can make those decisions at the beginning of the day that, you know, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Is a, is a life purpose hour where I'm working on my novel and and then 9 a.m. to 10 a.m., I'm stuck doing chores, and I'm not going to think about meaning during that time. I'm just going to get stuff done. And when we get into this habit of differentiating the day between those kind of life purpose times and those meaning-neutral times, A, we get a lot more done, but also we let go of attention at times when we don't need to pay attention to things that are, that are micro or meaningless. 
I like that. That's that is yeah. sane living versus yeah. unsane. I'm not saying insane, and here I'm borrowing from Dr. Right. Korzybski. Unsane living is not beneficial. It's not evolutionary. <laughs> it's got severe downsides. But when when you're able to focus and you're able to understand in terms of a nuanced assessment of your life or of life generally, I think you give yourself a huge advantage in terms of pursuing whatever is meaningful to you. What greater gift can you derive from living? Yeah, and anxiety gets in the way of all of these good things we're talking about. So that's why, to me, anxiety management is a big deal thing for human beings because simple tender, just a little bit of anxiety causes us to want to flee the encounter. When we get anxious, that's what we most want to do is get out of there. So if we're a little anxious about our activist hat or a little anxious about the novel we're writing or a little anxious about ABC, we're not going to do it. We're going to do some, we're going to do some meaning substitute. We're going to turn on the TV or whatever. So having some anxiety management tools that work, maybe just one anxiety management tool that works and understanding that anxiety threads through a day, threads through the creative process, threads through life, just understanding that, being ready for it, knowing that some deep breathing is needed here. If you have anxiety management tools, that allows you to live this negotiated, sane life better. If, if life is the math homework that is left undone, I would call social media the burlesque show that distracts me from what I should be focused on. You know, this is just a complete goofy aside, but I keep getting emails from Instagram that I have more followers on Instagram and I'm not even on it. <laughs> Good for I don't you. Even, <laughs> I don't even, un, I don't even, un, I don't understand what they're even saying to me. <laughs> it's pretty it, it funny. It is fascinating. For me, Facebook and Twitter, and that's a, a lot of how we market this program, <laughs> and it, it, it works to whatever degree it's going to work, but mm -hmm. I... I freely and fully confess that it is all too easy for me to write that email, send that tweet, or just retweet somebody else's tweet there or write to my friends on Facebook in order to give myself something entertaining to do. And that shows a lack of discipline on my part. I admit to that, and I admit that it's one of my life challenges. I'm in my 60s, and I'm That's still right. looking for that discipline that I have largely lacked in life, and but I'm you're not still going using, to... you're still using the discipline word. I can't wean you from that quite yet. Um, but see, that's I'm a tough case. What can I tell you? I need the case. devotion. Find something to which I can be devoted. And usually, and it's also, I, I don't know if I can say this quickly as we approach the end of the hour, right. but it's hard to get from one mindset to another mindset during the day. During the day, we're supposed to get things right: drive on the correct side of the road, pick up our kids at three, weed the garden, whatever. And then, some moment, if we're creative people, then some moment somehow supposed to come where we have real permission to make mistakes and messes and get into the creative process, which is a very different mindset from our everyday getting things right mindset. So I believe that in order to get from one mindset to the other, we need to create ceremonial bridges so that we could use those 10 minutes or 15 minutes or half an hour. It's very hard to use that half an hour if you can't get from one mind to the other mind. Absolutely true. And when we have you on next, the first question I'm going to be is, how would you describe 
with plenty of time, ceremonial bridges. I've got to make another appointment with you, Dr. <laughs> Maysell. I look forward to it as well. It's been too long between visits, and we won't wait so long before next time. You're always welcome on Manson Mitchell. Thank you so much. All right. <clears throat> and coming up next, Jupiter is rising. Jupiter I can rising. see it. It's right. That's a big planet. Yep. It's rising, and our good friend Eileen Grimes will take over from there. I hope that you're having a great weekend, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific right here on AM 1150. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.